Hello and welcome to the OCR Exams podcast, where we'll be chatting with a range of guest speakers from the world of education. My name's Anthony, I'm one of the hosts of the podcast. Here at OCR, we're committed to supporting teachers and exams officers at every step of their journey with us. We're also here to help our students reach their full potential, and some of our podcasts will feature tips and advice on revising, preparing for exams, and managing mental health. Please remember to like, comment on and subscribe to our podcast on whichever platform you're using and be sure to follow our other social media channels. We're on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube and Instagram. Just search for OCR exams. You can also find a range of subject specific blogs on our website, ocr.org.uk forward slash blog. So let's get started with today's episode. Hi everyone um, and welcome to this episode of the OCR podcast. Uh, my name is Sarah Millington and I'm the subject advisor for health and social care and child development here at OCR. So a big welcome back to Emma in Stanley, uh, the SENCO and Deputy Designated Safeguarding Lead and the Personal Social Health and Economic Coordinator and Dr Nicholas Rigsby, so Senior Deputy Head at Stonyhurst College in Lancashire. Um, so hi Emma and Nicholas and thanks for coming back and joining us. Pleasure, um, pleasure with you. Yeah, thank you for coming back. Um, so we recently published our SEND podcast um, part one, um, where we chatted to our guests about different types of SEN, um, what is an EHCP um, and how parents can best communicate with schools. Um, and so and so catching up on that episode, the link in the, is in the show notes. So in part two of our SEND podcast, um, I'll be chatting to Emma and Nicholas about SEND and more practical ways to support kind of in schools and colleges and also in the home. So we're kind of going to look at those aspects of it. Um, over to Emma and Nick, who's want to kind of give a brief introduction just to say hello again. Hello, Sarah. Yeah, Emma Winstanley, Head of Learning Support, SENCO, DDSL and uh, PSHE. Uh, coordinated, but also, yeah, here to talk to you about how we can offer some ongoing support to our young people with SEND. Hi, my name is Dr Nick Rigsby. I'm the Senior Deputy Head at the Stonyhurst College, but I also work as part of the safeguarding team and I try and draw together all the multidisciplinary teams, including SEN, who I really, really enjoy working with in the school. Lovely. Thank you very, very much. Okay, so one thing that kind of is an aspect and kind of we talked about in kind of part one is about kind of how teachers and how kind of they can get support um, and as a teacher it can be quite overwhelming so kind of with big groups um, and more needs in the classroom so how do centres so how can centres support um, their staff with regards to their well-being um, kind of I think it's kind of quite important kind of moving forward so how can centres support them? Um, well, if I just if I, if I start by saying um, it's important for all staff to to know that um, there is often a wealth of support and and knowing where it is, how to find it, how to access it, is often some of the kind of communication issues that schools need to kind of really consider. And I say this as a as a busy teacher as well. I mean, this is it's so crucial. I was the first steps is is to to have the accurate information around the children that you've got sat in front of you. So working very closely with your like data managers um, to make sure that 
you know, there are um, programs and, and management systems that contain accurate uh, data on achievements, prior achievements and targets is something really helpful for like heads of department to kind of uh, introduce to new staff um, and particularly kind of taking that extra time to go over um, the, the methods in which we share this information. Like I've mentioned MIS, we use ISOMs, for example. Um, invest in the time in like younger members of staff, people who might have returned to the profession, or if there have been differences in the way that you do things within, you know, internally in the organization, taking the time to invest in to go through with that. But like knowing the kids, coming back to my point, um, is the best thing, you know, for, for anybody and taking time to read through, for example, the 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 plans that are in place to support the the varied needs of young people. I would say from a SEND point of view, are the are the the plans that are in place, are they relevant, are they up to date, are they clear, are they accurate? So we work with pupil passports and individual plans where there are probably multidisciplinary needs. But it's important that um, teachers can access these easily and they are familiar with the format and what they contain and also they're clear on how best to implement them in class. So supporting kind of teachers with the basics, I would say that's a very good starting point so that when they're planning the, the teaching and learning activities and assessment methods, they have in mind a really clear picture of the needs of the pupils in that particular particular group. Um, I've been there. I've been doing my teacher training. I, I anticipated the needs to be, you know, up here. And basically, within the first five minutes of the first lesson that I took hours to plan, it was clearly I pitched it at the wrong level because of there was a lack of information around the needs of the children in that group. So it can save a lot of heartache if if that kind of information is there. Um, the first of all, from a kind of academic teaching and learning point of view. Now, Dr. Briggs, we don't know if you want to say anything about how we support the wider needs of children, um, mental health and other perhaps pastoral needs. Yeah, before I do that, I think Sarah has, um, you know, pulled out a really interesting question there, which we touched on in some of the sort of threads in the the first cast in this um, pair of two on this particular topic. And I think from a leadership perspective in schools now, we need to take a good hard look about our responsibilities and to some extent the ethics of how we recruit people who have their own families and lives and all the rest of it and issues around childcare and so on to come into school and be really responsive professionals given how much we're asking people to do and let's face it um, with understanding individual children's needs particularly which are often the more pronounced uh, children within within the classroom can be really really um, challenging these days as well as to where you find sufficient quality time. What I would say is one of the, so the HR side of things in the schools, you may well find that um, we're able to sort of recruit people, but I think there are pressures across the sector and I think people have found other professions to go to where they could possibly make the same sort of money and all the rest of it, but not in education because it's, it's just getting busier and busier and busier. But if you do recruit people, I think that leadership teams in schools have got a greater responsibility to be less breathless in um in supporting um, teachers that you've got because they come to the profession and the vocation because they really want to do right for kids. But I suppose my observation would be that I'm finding people burn out a lot quicker and they might even get into the first Christmas term and by half term of saying, do you know what, this isn't for me, this isn't a profession anymore because I just cannot simply do 
all the things that you want me to do and I can't be across the level of detail that you want me and I haven't got the time to be able to train. A lot of people, of course, are trained and they're going to be, you know, take professional responsibility really seriously. So what I would say in wrapping up this sort of answer is that I think the starting point is inset. And at the very year, the first thing you do in education is you tend to get people in for one or two or three days of inset. But is that inset really meaningful? Don't crowd it too much and probably target it specifically to what you need to know to suit to suit the most vulnerable needs of children in your classroom and what, what actually how they tick, who they are, what they do. So whether it's um, looking at an ILP in detail, the individual learning plan, what that actually means, or being able to engage with that child's pupil passport. What are they telling you? What do they actually want you to know about them? What makes life better for them in your context? And just keep at it. So don't crowd things too much, but just keep it simple. Less is more. All that flaps doesn't fly. And make sure that you really know those kids' needs first before you do bigger picture stuff. And that's what I think is going to be a major pressure for school leaders um, in the, the days, months and the years ahead. Well, that's really helpful. Thank you. If I can have a take that, so I'm thinking of um, new um, teachers kind of going into the profession. So if I take an example, if you've got a new member of staff coming into um, the centre and they really didn't know where to go, they hadn't got all that kind of in place, what advice would you give them? Just kind of quickly, what advice would you give them? Where would they go? Well, what I would say is often it's kind of um, that there is a perception that you you have to do a great deal more. Often what's good for the SEND kids and those with additional needs is good for all children. So the the kind of reduction of anxiety around actually, you know, when you look at it, you could look at a class list and you could look at, you know, we, we kind of flag up and star the needs of children. You may have, you know, five or six children in a group with a particular need. Often you will find there is a common thread of support that will meet the needs of all children in that group and they will thrive. So reassuring like a new member of staff that, you know, you will have the basics right. You will have um, already a really good starting point to, to meet the needs of these children. It's often just the, the polishing and the tweaking that you need. And often that is, you know, signposting them to people who are experienced or who can give them the tools that they need. And that may be, you know, um, different types of assistive software to kind of provide a different level of reading support for a young person. It, it could be that they attend a particular training course on a particular need that, for example, you know, we have it where sometimes certain cohorts present, you know, we might have a, a heavily dyslexic cohort, perhaps this year coming through, we've got children who are more neurodiverse and struggling with mental health. We can, like Nick said, inset becoming very bespoke and personal to them so that they feel there's an investment in the skills. It, it's really just giving them the confidence to grow with this very specific kind of adjustments uh, in place that often um, make a difference and give them that confidence saying, actually, you know what, everybody's in the same boat with like this set four or whatever it might be. And another thing, again, is signpost them to other people who are dealing with the same issues. So I often have like working groups with certain groups of teachers who are teaching a set that might present perhaps with challenging behaviour. You know, um, I'm going to say it's like a shared misery, but <laughs> that's probably not a positive way to put it. But nonetheless, what you find is, like kind of bouncing ideas off one another um, can give, you know, a kind of, um, what can I say, a lens to look at a class either differently or accept that, you know, 
together they might need to, to to have a different or additional type of sport put in place um for the group so knowing that you're not on your own is hugely important for some of these people but again i mean nick's the same a very much open door policy and breaking down that hierarchical kind of perception of things have to escalate before we get to specific support i mean we, again we have an open door policy where you know any any members of staff can drop in uh, with parents can come in and see us so that low level issues don't become major issues and I think the clarity of, and reassurance to particularly new staff to the profession um, it is so important and regularly touching base with them saying this is like a non-threatening conversation you know I, I heard that you've done this really well but I would suggest you know knowing that this piece of the jigsaw has been missing you can change tack and, and, and build those positive nurturing conversations with staff um, because it, it is intense and, and sharing that understanding and saying, yeah, I might have been teaching for 20 years and this still is difficult for me. Sometimes it's so reassuring to hear, but equally <laughs> quite soul destroying. Um, so, yeah, I think it's that's it's really important that schools create a culture whereby it's not seen as a failure or it, it's not a deficit in, in your practice. It's something that actually can be an area to focus and develop. So we have a number of I would say particularly uh, newly qualified staff actually pick up um, specific skill set on the back of good CPD who then become specialists or they, they, they follow a specialist trajectory and that is really good for them career-wise. So um, lots of opportunity if you, if you facilitate it, I would say. Yeah, so the incentive that's really kind of useful to know about that and that inclusivity as well and breaking down those barriers and that's really really important so I think you've answered kind of my next question about where they would go um kind of with regards to if they identified or maybe a member of their kind of um support team that was working in their classroom um identified a student that may have had a may have a specific need and um, what would be the process so they would come straight to kind of yourself or kind of if they had a worry about kind of a student would that be the case is that kind of would they be aware of that process yeah, I think Nick's right in saying, um, and you might want to jump in in a second, like investing in insects is, is that is kind of child-centred and relevant to the job that you're doing is so important. And I, I've been, you know, um, what can I say? There's times when I think actually I, I, it would have been helpful to know this and, and, and I've been told that. I think having clear communication and like, you know, we like a flowchart of what happens next is so important for staff. So they know that, for example, if they are reaching a threshold, as I talked about in part one, that there may be an SEND need. Have we got, you know, each kind of band of, of evidence to kind of uh, move this forward and supporting them with that? So looking at them, say, so what what leads you to, to, to this particular judgment call? And again, our referral process is very clear so they can bring that evidence so that you're not, you know, asking children to go over all ground or parents to repeat the same particular, you know, I've had a conversation with with teacher X. They should have told teacher Y. It, all around communication sorry nick you want to jump oh, in 
not at all. I was just going to say to sort of pull this back to the notion of insert. And as you say, what do we actually do for a teacher, maybe a younger teacher or somebody who's come into the profession from a different career and a different things? If if they're still on your ship, basically, after insert, they haven't decided to fall overboard after what insert's done to them. And let's face it, that can happen sometimes. Is that when the ship actually sets sail into the Christmas term? And let's say, I don't know, let's look at it as now. We're mid-November, putting a timestamp on this. It's dark. It's miserable it's wet the teachers are pretty fed up and tired and actually the kids are tired and Emma's right so outside of the just send being sort of sealed into a box you've got let's let's call it comorbidity all the other things that are going on and Emma mentioned it as she did in the first cast of this pair and, and, a, and an earlier question about well mental health issues about more pronounced behavioral issues so if you take the whole package of that how can you support teachers to do that one thing I would say is that it's really really crucial beyond outside of the classroom time and probably very little free time out of the timetable for a teacher and beyond the times when they're being directed to go to heads of department meetings or to go to you know an academic deputies data driven meetings and all that if you have any spare time and it's probably going to be really really limited is paying attention to having what i call multidisciplinary team conversations is that you give your senko your tas your counsellors, if you're lucky enough to have counselling support in the school, perhaps bringing in the educational psychologist if you have those in the building or around, your PSHE coordinator, members of your safe building team, your assistant heads, and actually giving sufficient time during a week to have meaningful conversations that are professional, so they're pretty concise, but the time and the space to actually just take care that you know what's going on around a child in the life of a child. We're, we're an Ignatian school in our setting for Emma and I, and it's all about virtues being that you're discerning, you're reflective, you're truthful, um, you're eloquent, you're loving. And, and really, it's just, what it is, is just an eclectic toolkit to live your life so that you can do living and you can do learning best that you possibly can. But if you then say, well, that's multidisciplinary, it's just giving your staff the space to ask questions about kids and come together and to talk outside of all the data and all the other um, QAing that goes on and learning walks and all the rest of it. And I think it's really, really important. If you put that at the front and centre of everything you do, you're a much better school. Absolutely. Thank you for that. But I also kind of wanted to pick up on, as I've, I've mentioned this a couple of times, a pupil passport. Is that something that's kind of just in your centre or is that something, what is a pupil passport? Okay, yeah. So basically each set, school setting will have a, a means to communicate the needs of children and young people. And what we, we tend to do is we are a, a true believer that most of the children's needs in our context can be met within the classroom setting. So if we equip teachers, give them the right training, show them, you know, working with, you know, teaching and learning support and giving them you know i would say additional support with differentiation skills i would say you would capture and this is again coming to the reassurance for, for for teachers skilled teachers can meet the needs of most children so the pupil passport basically in our context supports the quality first teaching um kind of needs and it captures the the voice of the young person and how they perceive what kind of works for them in terms of the classroom setting and in our case it's in boarding it's with the games and the co-curricular activities and basically it's an acknowledgement to to the children that we you know they're often the ones who bring the solutions to their own problems and they are very good at um, kind of expressing very, very specifically and succinctly what doesn't work for them in the classroom. And much of the time, like Nick's just said about talking and giving people space to have conversations and develop relationships, 
much of the 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 leg the legwork around this can be resolved and the pupil passport really just captures that that opportunity for young people to um to say what it is that would um enable them to make as best progress as possible so where children need a more higher level or a kind of uh, additional or different type of support, perhaps from an external agency, they will have a pupil passport that represents their voice. Um, it, that is shared with teachers and it has an input with families. So um, families can you know, join in with that. Learning plans become more specific so that the interventions are more accountable. Um, but yeah, we are trying to develop that. Um, and again, uh, ownership for young people, particularly age appropriate ownership, um, I think that's really important for young people to start recognising how the, the SEN profile sits with the plans and what we might need to, to do to support them going forward. Yeah. Sorry, Nick yeah, and Sarah, Emma raises a really interesting point there, which people on this course today, um, I, I, of course, I can't assume which settings people come from, but one, one really interesting thing around the country, of course, is that there's loads of independent boarding schools, and of course, there's the state boarding schools and other residential settings for young people. And in talking about the pupil passport, um, where and, you know, a child feeds into, I need you to know this about me, is that in our settings, and this might be interesting to people listening into this, you've not ever worked in a boarding setting or a sort of place where you have co-education or single sex boarding is that there is so much unstructured time let's be honest about it unstructured time outside of the classroom where people are living uh, kids are living um, young people in loco parentis in your setting and there's plenty more that can sort of go wrong around them around that and, and working in a boarding school is really really interesting because really the other half of their week actually takes place sort of out of hours so to speak into night times into weekends into what we call unstructured time and it's really really important to sort of take account of you know how they tick and what they need and what could go wrong as well that's brilliant no that's thank you i think that kind of leads into kind of um a couple of questions later on so kind of we might kind of touch on that again um i think um, one thing that kind of um, does kind of come out so from my kind of teaching experience and kind of come to listen to kind of centres kind of call in um, to OCR is that um, extra support um, in schools is in high demand um, and they're calling out for it. Um, sometimes a teacher will have support in the classroom. Um, what advice would you give for making the most of that support? I know kind of when I taught, it was about kind of how do we use um, the help within the classroom. Would you give them any advice? How would they use that support in the classroom? I was just going to say, I mean, if you're fortunate, um, I know that the teaching assistant support here, they're the unsung heroes mainly of, of the success of people with like additional needs in a classroom setting. They're often the the nurturing, the the all seeing, you know what I mean? The, the the kind of resource that is, you know, worth its weight in gold to some degree. But I would say that if there, there is an acknowledgement that there is a group of children or an individual that requires like adult support, fundamentally, you know, making sure that there is a, a, a kind of understanding, clear um, a, arrangement at the beginning of term, for example, about the remit and limitations of what that support can entail. But often it's um, having that highly specialised and um, specific um, input with things like differentiation, things like kind of breaking things down, wording things differently. I think it's important that if you are giving advice to people who, who have that resource, that that like Nick said, you know, working together and, and, and making sure that there are clear plans, you know, the direction of travel and you're both on the same page with, when it comes to pupil outcomes it, is crucial. So I think, for example, you know, we need people to be on the same page. Uh, it's so important that, 
you know, you often find the teaching assistants are, are the bridge between parental communication. So whereby, you know, the, the hierarchical kind of, I don't want to offend the teacher by flagging this up. They might be able to kind of skin that cat, so to speak, by going through the teaching assistant, you know, a bit of diplomacy, a bit of kind of mediating, whatever. Um, but again, I think it's it's knowing that that resources are for a specific reason as well, and it's not over-exploited. I think, like you say, teaching assistants who feel value will go above and beyond. But again, I think the children, I think coaching them to know the, the roles and remits is really important. But obviously, from a if you think back to what you said about a newly qualified teacher, it's a reassurance, it's a support, it's a positive nod, it's a glance, it's a thumbs up at the back that your kids get it, you know what I mean? And it's that kind of moral support, particularly like if you're like me teaching a Friday afternoon, year 11s and, you know, so you're like trying to get them through Beth and you're like, yeah, you know, sometimes having that other adult for, I would say, understanding jokes, that dad jokes, people who don't get them, you know, they will laugh, kids won't. And that's how you realise, you know, you're very lucky. But um, I think, like you say, it's important that, you know, we have like the nascent resources as well, the excellent tools for implementing effective adult support, agreeing on 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 things like that with a set of boundaries is 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 crucial. But Nick, you've got you wanted to 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 kind of add to that, didn't you? Yeah, I just want to add to it. And I'm glad that actually on on this course we're talking about TAs and actually the real significance of TAs as well. Because I think sometimes that people just get lost as uh, you know, an adult in the place that nobody really sort of acknowledges what they do, why they do it, and actually sort of ask the curious questions as to what they're there for. I sometimes are quite provocative in the senior leadership team and say, Do you know so and so? And do you actually know what they do? And if they can't answer that, I say, Well, that, that really is the first thing that you should be doing on Monday morning is speaking to these people because they're absolutely crucial because they're actually direct one-to-one living and working and breathing around children um, to make their lives better and you see the best and worst of practice across education don't you with this so how do you work with teachers who just can't accept that you can have other adults in your classroom I mean it sounds like a crazy thing to suggest but I've seen doors shut in the face of TAs for example not in this setting but in, in other sort of settings where they say not today thank you very much you're not coming in my room the door's closed and it's just like there's just me and the kids in here and we're doing what we're doing now that that requires obviously supportive conversations and all the rest of it but that would be the very worst of things um of actually you know how much these people can contribute when what they're doing in your classroom to help support and keep the flow and the pace and all the rest of it and that everybody's on task and etc i was really lucky to work for a period of time at a state maintained sector state boarding school called royal alexandra and Albert School, which is based around Redhill, um, Rygate in Surrey, which is a massive school with lots and lots of children, a lot of them from very, very, very backgrounds, but in a boarding sort of context. And the assistant head inclusion there, the, one of the best things that she was able to do every single week was that they just had the most effective team meeting first thing on a Monday morning with breakfast and all the other bits and pieces for the staff who obviously just arrived in work, they've done childcare, they've got all their own sort of things to do. But just to make sure that everybody knew what they were doing, what the shape of the week was going to look like, what they were going to achieve, what their targets, outcomes, all the rest of it were, and the team. It was a really bit like a sort of amazing team power every single week so that they went off knowing what they were doing and they'd had sufficient time as well to engage with the teachers that they were going to. So the teachers really understood what it was that that person was, how how skilled and experienced they were with all sorts of degrees, training, qualifications, all the rest of it, and, and other careers and other life journeys that they had and how it was going to make life in the classroom just, just that much more amazing for that teacher who might have been under pressure without it and if they had shut the door on the TA. 
No, I've actually, I was just writing that down. A breakfast team meeting at the beginning of the week is kind of a really key thing. And I think I might actually suggest that actually kind of, thanks Nick for that. <laughs> I'll take that forward. Okay. <laughs> I quite like that. Um, so we've got here as well about kind of resources. We've, um, in OCR kind of, we do produce resources and we have kind of publishers that produce resources. And one thing that kind of I find um, a kind of a particular area is kind of about how accessible kind of resources are. So just kind of one question is how can resources affect the way um, SEND students learn um, and is there any kind of advice there about kind of types of resources um, that you would like to see or you prefer to use? I think, I think like you said conversations with children um, are, are really revealing as to what you think actually they want is sometimes totally different than what they they tell you so we've just come off the back of obviously a, a big period of online learning to facilitate the, the pandemic and the biggest thing as a senko is that not all children like to learn from screens now whilst we're trying to kind of incorporate technology and use that to complement the the teaching and learning assessment it doesn't fit all children's needs so i think what we we find is that um you know the kind of resources that were are really effective for teachers are those that can be easily adapted from paper-based to you know online learning and sometimes i mean you know we've all been there with the struggle of trying to adapt things like pdfs into word documents and all the rest of it to make sometimes the adjustments that we need i think that agility of like assistive software for us as well as teachers is really important and um I say this with, um, like you said, part laughing, but part like honestly, the frustrations that we've had um, it is, is, it is time consuming. So anything that we can do to reduce time and, and I think a really um, helpful thing for people to do is is collate banks of resources. So, for example, in PSHE to adapt the programme for children and young people with SEND, you know, we're likely to have a profile of children that will do that. So kind of work together to curate banks of resources that, you know, it will save the troll of the internet. It will save, you know what I mean, the, those hours you spend selecting. So we are quite good here at using Teams and different uh, Microsoft platforms to, to, to kind of collate these. But I would say one one huge thing, and again, it's a shift in other schools uh, and teachers are listening to this is, um, you know, the 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 historic from a SEM point of view, Erlen syndrome and those who've got visual um, kind of processing um, difficulties. Um, it's the that you don't need to kind of buy the blue paper books. I mean, in some cases you do, but the technology has kind of advanced so much. You've got the Microsoft like immersive reader functions that are so accessible. But what I find is teachers often feel that they're rushed and they can't coach the children on how to use them. So an investment of a resource and time to, to, to show children how to use that. I would say it'll, it'll kind of repay you tenfold in the sense that, you know, half hour going through how we can tint the screens, how we can adapt the fonts and changes. Um, it's literally life changing for some young people, particularly when um, we look at how they progress from key stage three to four to five and the amount of text, for example, that they're trying to kind of absorb. The immersive type resources and reader resources, I should say, um, have really come into play. And I think from a teacher point of view, um, it's that kind of, um, what can I say, the support that other, other staff who perhaps are a little bit more techie, it's worth a 15 minute conversation over a cup of tea saying, listen, 
you know, how can I get, you know, from point A to B with this? And, and often you find, you know, I've got a very supportive colleague, Andrew Henderson, who's leading on the digital kind of learning here. Um, the ability to kind of, you know, work this wizardry to kind of get these things to happen. It, it's just like that is it will save hours of, of sweat and tears. And I think that kind of um, for teachers, being able to be signposted to people who are known to 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 help them to to give them quality um, resources or to at least show where these are, is it, it's just so so important to have. Um, sorry, Nick. Yeah. I think another thing was really interesting about education um, through the pandemic. I think the the blood drains from everybody's face these days when you sort of start any call or conversation by talking about you know the pandemic. But we have to acknowledge how profound it was on education. And one of the really interesting things off the back of what Emma was saying there is amazing is that we all remember, or maybe we don't remember because we've got sort of PTSD as a result of it, what it was like trying to put in place alternative learning because of the first lockdown. And obviously a lot of schools and leadership teams and SENCOs and all the rest of it thought, what is this going to look like this new sort of innovation of switching to online learning and of course it was a very mixed economy across the countries who could do that who couldn't do that who was sending out bundles of paper who just couldn't resource that for all sorts of different reasons or where the government fell short of the promises they may have made about providing devices or the rest of it we all remember that it seems like distant history but actually it was only a couple of years ago and in some cases it still lingered and the word of caution i sort of advise is that Innovation sometimes is always sort of painted as you know a really, really positive thing. But of course, as people know, you can have disruptive innovation. So innovation is actually like bad innovation because it didn't take account of everybody's individual needs. And this is very much in an SEND point of view. So whilst schools sort of rush to say, we're going to give everybody a device, we're going to do all our learning online, we are going paperless, yay, how sustainable are we, big ourselves up, and all the rest of it, we're going to do all our marking online, and no child is ever going to write anything down. That is disruptive innovation to some extent because, for example, some children did really well on this. If you have an ADHD-based sort of profile, some of these kids really thrived in the online. There were no distractions, there were no disruptions around them. They were on their device, it was really focused and they loved it. But there is also a time when you need to look at it and say, maybe that's no longer right to do that by being there. So, for example, they were focused, maybe they had better outcomes, they improved, there was value added. But equally, the kids were out of sight. And if they remained online, they then disappeared. So there are all sorts of things to be really careful about disruptive innovation in education, particularly how it might affect kids with um, SEND profiles particularly. So it might seem like school leaders and particularly academic leaders might say this is the brave new world, this is the new way we're going to do this digital, 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 yada, yada, yada. But we just don't lose sight of what kids actually need. And they do need to know how to write and actually hold a pen and to use that and have those, those muscle memory as well as motor skills as well. And I think that's something we need to be quite interested in, in terms of, if you like, the R&D, the research and development where education goes on with some of the innovations and some of the disruptive innovation from the pandemic. Oh, that's really, really interesting. Thank you for that. That's covered like kind of lots of aspects there. I think I'm going to cover other kind of questions there as well. So I am going to go on to this final, final kind of question. Um, and it is kind of um, just from blogs that kind of I've written um, on ADHD. Um, the SEN kind of and SEN doesn't just finish uh, kind of when the school day ends. Um, it carries on into the home um, and kind of we all know kind of parents have, um, have got children uh, with special educational needs. Um, we have had contact from parents uh, that want to help their child as they've been highlighted as a child with special educational needs. 
just what advice would you give them to support their child in the home um, to help with their studies? Um, because some of the messages are sometimes quite, please, please help. Well, if I start by saying that, you know, on a human level, we've got to understand that, you know, it's, I mean, there isn't the support network that there is in a school setting. So you have to find that these young people return home and the parents have got busy lives themselves. They've got siblings, they've got other challenges. You've got to just kind of, uh, you know, work together to acknowledge parents' efforts and just say that, you know, you are doing enough, like you can do, you know, your best and where you feel that you need help, that we can step up and help you because this is a, a team around the child. This is a, a point of, you know, kind of often real emotion for some for some um, for some parents and often they struggle and they struggle and they do their best and it drains them and it's really challenging for them and they only reach out sometimes when they are they are spent they've got literally they feel there's nowhere else to turn and what I would say a good model of support for parents is like please just raise it up and the sooner we know about things the sooner we can work together to help you and um, I think it's important that what that look like that that looks like you you don't have to be in a crisis point it doesn't have to be um you know a hysterical phone call or you know a strongly worded email it could be like you know I'm, I'm beginning to see a pattern now for example the studies that are being set on a certain night there, there is adaptations that we can make that will achieve the same outcomes but the reassurance for parents to know that and to hear that can often be such a weight off the the shoulders and I think schools need to be kind of a bit more kind of prepared to to look at the wider lens and, and what it is we're trying to achieve. Now, that said, you know, you might think, well, I've got 30 kids in a class. I've got to get this. I've got to get that. But longer term, I would say, again, it, it looks at making that adjustment might then have a positive effect on the person in your group. They know that you are supporting them, the parents, and this is a real team effort. And I would say that often, I mean, up here in Lancashire, we've got um, like the fine newsletter, the kind of collective response for parent forums for SEN. There are support groups out there that we signpost uh, families to. So, for example, we have young people with ASD who, when they're outside of school, they may need some uh, kind of social contact uh, and ongoing support. So we work very closely with charities such as Bernardo's and we look at uh, small groups that uh, are often, you know, gathering in, in local areas that parents might want to drop in. And sometimes it is just going together to have a cup of tea. Again, like I said earlier, are you experiencing this? Like, yeah, and it's that validation that, you know what I mean, um, that is so important. And you know, again, with a safeguarding hat, both Nick and I do significant work with a safeguarding team and we're experienced safeguard leads. You know, we understand that, you know, it. lots of people might roll eyes about pizza for tea again tonight, chicken nuggets for tea tonight. You know, your kids have had something to eat. You know, they're fine, they're, they're safe, they're warm, and then they're in a better place to have, you know, that conversation about perhaps missed homework or whatever it might be. But parents, to pick up the pieces, sometimes like Nick and I often talk about, they're like a coil spring, some of our young people with SEND, and they hold it together and they mask and they behave in a way that they think people expect them to behave. And that toll is so significant. It, it does have a knock-on effect, perhaps potentially with mental health, um, sometimes physical health, you know, but nonetheless, it's, it's seeing the whole person, the parent is the one who picks up what they've got to say and I'll be honest again 
there's nothing more unhelpful. Well, they don't behave like that for me or I don't see that. It's like, well, I'm sorry, but I do. And this is what I'm asking you to help me with. I think parents need to be reassured that, you know, the teachers, again, are equipped with with a range of additional resources. Traditionally, again, we would be seen as a partner agency with other healthcare policing, other teams. As a school, we are a partner and we will work together with teams to build a network of support for these young people. And um, we are probably, you know, less threatening as, a, you know, as schools, but we know the children better. They spend a lot of time here. So I think kind of reassuring parents that, you know, there is there's always someone here to help, no matter how small or how large the issue might be, and how we communicate that through things like newsletters, email bulletins, coffee mornings. It, it, it's having that transparency, the open communication that I think when you get to that point, particularly speaking with a Senko hat on, you know that, you know what I mean, you just need that reassurance that you're not tackling this on your own. Um, so, so, Nick... Yeah, in my point in my career. No, I think the points you make are really, really relevant. And um, as, as you know, where I'm at in my career now, in the most recent years, the last few years, I've given a lot, a lot more thought about parenting and about being a parent and about knowing how to be a parent or just simply not knowing how to be a parent. And I think if in schools, look, we've talked about capacity, haven't we, on this on cast today. But if your teachers or your Senko or your DSL or people in leadership have got any additional time and they probably don't have that time to do that, I think schools increasingly um, need to um, play a proactive role in actually helping parents to parent. Um, and to some extent, we, we do that here where we're able to, because I think parents are under, you know, stress, duress, all other things, not just around things like financing, running the home, holding down jobs, multiple jobs, all that kind of stuff, but equally the nervousness about not knowing how to parent and getting it wrong with the kids when they are at home out of the structure of school. And equally parents where you have to be quite firm with them and say, I should be thinking of being really bad parents. So I'm just sorry to be dead honest with you, not being nice to you, but I'm being kind to you. And as kindly as I can saying, you're just getting it wrong because you never say no to your child and then you reap what you sow, etc., etc. And also, but it's also being conscious that parents as well, they don't know what teen rager they've got at home or somebody younger sometimes who lives and breathes and believes everything in the world because TikTok says so, Insta says so, Snapchat says so, or wherever else they're getting alternative truths, facts, reality, or the sense of reality. So I think it's an acknowledgement of the school that it seems to be really, really hard to be a parent these days. There isn't a manual beyond, you know, why mummy drinks, why mummy does this, why mummy swears, that you can sort of get through it. Um, um, but particularly if we're talking about SEN, a child with SEND, let's say for Emma said, for example, ASC, a child with autism spectrum condition, that can be really, really challenging at home. And when they reach puberty, adolescence, get onto social media, and some of the things that can go wrong can go wrong really quickly through coercion and all the rest of it. And how can schools help that homeschool partnership to be as responsive as it can be um, so that you just get you know, that that patchwork, that quilt almost all around, not just the children, but about mum and dad as well. Yeah. That's brilliant. No, thank you. That, I thought that was going to be really reassuring and helpful. I wish there was a manual. Okay, but kind of <laughs> just sort of parenting. Yeah, that's the way forward, I think. So, but thank you ever so much for that. That's been really, really helpful. Um, and I'm sure for all kind of our teachers and our parents and our students that are out there, um, so that's it. That's kind of it's brought us to the kind of the end. So that's all for our Send Part 2 podcast. So thank you, um, Emma and Nick, for joining us. Um, to everyone listening, um, I hope you found this episode interesting. 
don't forget to share this podcast with your colleagues and students and please get in touch with us if you need any further support. All of our contact details and social media channels can be found at ocr.org.uk forward slash contact. Thank you very, very much.